Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, thank you for joining me again this week, and I have what I think is a really interesting conversation about healthcare financing. Now, before you move on to another episode, stay with me because I think it's important that we consider how we get paid for the work we do. My first guest is Dr. Jonathan Price. Dr. Price is a general pediatrician practicing in Dublin, Ohio. He works in the primary care and pediatric urgent care field. He is co-chair of the Ohio Pediatric Council, a dialogue group linking pediatricians and insurance plans looking for win-win solutions to improve health care access and coverage for children, as well as attaining the financial means for pediatric practices to provide excellent care. He is a member of AAP committees dedicated to child health financing policies and advocacy with public and private health insurance payers. Jenna Vallejo is joining us, and she is the Chief Operating Officer of Potomac Pediatrics in Rockville, Maryland. She is a healthcare executive that utilizes innovative ideas to revolutionize the patient experience. The past few years, she has focused on building an integrative mental health model in primary care pediatrics that is accessible and affordable for patients and financially viable for the practice. Jenna is passionate about striving to offer more expansive pediatric services that can be tailored to the patient to optimize patient outcomes while reducing overall medical expenses for families and the healthcare system. Jenna previously served in the United States Navy as a hospital corpsman, as well as worked in family practice and urgent care nursing roles. Her clinical experience, combined with her healthcare leadership expertise, allows her to approach challenges from the patient experience viewpoint and the practice's need to achieve financial success. Please join me in welcoming Jenna and John to the podcast. Hi, Jenna and John. I'm so glad that you're here with me. Thank you so much for making time today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Great. Well, listen, this topic is probably a little bit different for listeners than some of the um, other episodes I've done, but I think it's really important because mental health is something that primary care and actually all clinicians that engage with children and families, it is an important part of what we do, but we don't always get paid for what we do. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about what that looks like because I mean, we need to be able to do this work. And I think we'll first start with just some basics because, and I'm going to be honest, this is probably not my forte about kind of the whole healthcare financing because it's super complicated. So, John, I'm going to start with you maybe to just give us a little landscape about Medicaid and CHIP and what that looks like for children because what I understand is over half of kids are now covered by these. So if you want to just start with, that'd be great. Yeah, I think as far as uh, children and healthcare coverage, we we have about maybe 5% of children that aren't 
covered by health insurance at all, which is sad. The, there are a number on individual plans, a number on employer-based plans, and the, but the single largest insurer of children in the United States is Medicaid. And practicing pediatricians may know that, that gosh, as of, oh, a handful of years ago, maybe half of all newborn deliveries were children covered by Medicaid. And in normal times, maybe about 40% of children are. But what happened during the pandemic is that with layoffs and economic disruptions, adults signed up for Medicaid themselves and then found out that their children were also eligible. And so that's how we got to half of all children in the United States, approximately, currently covered by Medicaid. And under the current time, states agreed, in exchange for more money from the federal government, to not disenroll anybody until the government declares that the public health emergency from COVID is over. And so when that happens, though, when that happens, though, that number of 50% is probably going to drop down to about 40%. And one of the issues that all of the listeners will want to be paying close attention to is how are their states going about disenrolling the people who are no longer eligible, you know, because the parents have gotten jobs, they make too much to be on Medicaid. And that's going to be tricky because when people have to reapply, there can be barriers to paperwork, administrative barriers in getting themselves back on or keeping themselves on, so to speak. So, and that's going to be a challenge. State workers who are already kind of overburdened and not necessarily the best paid people in the world are going to have a whole lot of applications to reprocess. So there are opportunities for pitfalls, but that's where things stand right right now. Well, and I think the other thing that it's taken me a while to completely understand is the difference between Medicaid and CHIP. CHIP allowing folks that have higher incomes to qualify, if I'm understanding that correctly. And then the other piece that I think makes things even more complicated is funding varies from state to state. Do I have that right? That's right. I think CHIP was designed for people who make too much to qualify for Medicaid. And I think maybe 5% of the insurance pie is o- for children is occupied by people who are on CHIP. The, the, way, you be, the way a family is eligible uh, is a function of their income. And it's always expressed as a percentage of the federal poverty level. And right now, I was just looking this up, to be regarded as at the federal poverty level or below it, a single parent and a child would be making no more than $18,310. If we're talking about a family of four, the federal poverty level is $27,750. And a lot of us will just kind of gasp at how low the federal poverty level is, right? And the, the way Medicaid is built right now, is that it's a partnership between the federal government paying the majority of it and state governments paying the I think right now, by law, all Medicaid programs have to cover people who are below adults uh, who are less than 138% of Medicaid. So for a single adult, that would be, which would be your non-custodial parent, for instance, that would be $18,750 for an annual. Now, as far as children, you can, a family, a household can make more than that. And the, and it varies in, as far as Midwestern states in my Ohio, a child can be on Medicaid if the single parent and child make less than 28,005 and for a family of four, less than 43,000 
three with to qualify for you can be in that gap between that amount and for a single in child 38,600 for a family of four 58,000 in Indiana and in, in infants covered by Medicaid a single mom and child can should be making less than 39,000 family of four 59,000 when you get a little older it drops down to like for this single parent and child 29,000 or for a family of four 45 in Michigan it's for the single parent and child 35,000 for an infant if, if it's a child and you're looking at coverage it's 29,000 for Medicaid and for chip it's like 39,000 uh family of four infant 54,000 for the household income for a child older than an infant 44,000 and if you're on chip the household just needs to make less than 60,000. No, and it's a huge variation. And I think, gosh, when I hear 18,000, I'm like, how does anybody pay bills on that? I mean, especially as the housing market and the rental market. I I mean, yeah, it's not much. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around some of that. Well, let me ask you kind of moving on a little bit to primary care. So we get a little bit of the idea of what the landscape looks like just as far as funding for the poorest children. So for many of us taking on primary care, it it's costs a lot, but it, again, it's our job. And these kids, we've all heard about the mental health crisis and kids may need psychiatrists or developmental behavioral health folks, and there just aren't enough of those. So every day we have primary care folks that are trying to do all, all the things. We're doing well visits and vaccines acute chronic illness and behavioral health and do you think payers understand like what we're doing no there are uh, in general be able to speak to this but some of the biggest issues is that health insurers uh, have set up a parallel universe the payment system for mental health services and from their point of view they think hey we have established this this other section, this other world where we administer or somebody we contract with administers payment for mental health services. And it has its own set of providers. And that sounds at the surface. Great. Okay, great. They have dedicated specialists. But as happens so many times in the real world, what happens is that if a pediatrician ventures into reporting mental health services, the payer says, oh, wait, you're not a provider in our system here. And so we've heard about pediatricians dealing with ADHD and they're saying, well, that, that should have been done by a mental health provider. Well, there aren't enough dedicated mental health providers and the problems that pediatricians deal with, especially now that we're dealing with so much more in the way of anxiety and depression, as well as learning issues, it's a real, it's a real barrier. And so the, some of the solutions have started to evolve trying to get mental health people into your practice or shared among various practices. But then your people are running into issues with saying, uh, well, I have to get my whole practice recategorized as a multi-specialty group when really I was just a pediatric practice you know, before. Right. And, and so there's some of those issues that, that come up even simple, uh, separately, even simple things that pediatricians do like screening for anxiety or depression. We've had problems with commercial payers paying for those 
just simple screening tests. So right, right. That's for why people I say, out there, for people out there listening, I mean, you can code for screening, for example, of the PHQ nine or the GAD seven or the ages and stages and questionnaire, but for the mental health screeners, Vanderbilt's, that's a nine six one two seven code. So at least in in Michigan, when I looked at it a few years ago, Medicaid would pay two dollars and ninety seven cents for up to three of those. But a lot of times, families with commercial pay, their insurers weren't covering that, and or if they hadn't met their deductible. So that the coverage for those codes was getting kicked back to them. And there was a lot of pushback, like, well, I don't want you to screen. So here we are. It's kind of a a catch-22. The academy is recommending that we screen kids for these mental health services. And and so nobody is covering that. So then it falls to the families. And then sometimes we just say, oh, well, we'll just eat the cost. And of course, then we're doing the work for right? I don't know, Jenna, what do you think about that? Yeah. So we, in in my practice, and I'm here in Maryland and the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And so our patient population base is, it's all commercial insurance. And the Medicaid population in this region is much less than in other parts of the country. So as someone that deals exclusively with commercial insurance, the way we've actually been able to get those paid is when we're doing those insurance contracts, we have to carve out those codes. So we have to specifically say, hey, these are our mental health screening codes. This is what we're doing. And we we need this carved out as so that it's getting paid. Now, just like you mentioned, sometimes these screening codes go to the patient deductible and that puts you in a very hard place. As a practice, because these screenings are recommended by the AAP and because they are absolutely necessary, if we find that it goes to patient deductible, we end up just writing it off because the option of not doing the screening and missing something so significant doesn't provide the best care to the patient. And so we, we find that too with insurance companies that they are, they're so focused on putting out their own programs and pushing that agenda as opposed to partnering with the pediatricians and primary care providers who are actually on the ground seeing these patients, talking to these patients and have a better idea of what they need so that the patients are getting care in real time from trusted providers. And I that's one area when dealing with health insurance that these companies don't really take into account is that it's hard enough for a lot of children to go to the doctor and not be afraid and to open up and understand that these are trusted adults. They can share the most sensitive pieces of information to then have to try to funnel them to other adults that they likely will only see on a computer screen. Not only is that an ineffective method of providing mental health services, it doesn't put the child first. And right now we are seeing just an instrumental increase in anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and that the eating disorders have been, have almost been taking over in in our practice. And we, all of our pediatricians are treating ADHD on a regular basis. That's just, that's part of the, their routine day. They all treat anxiety. They all treat depression. And we have a very comprehensive program because we do have a full mental health staff on board. But the to to give them that support, 
But yeah, the insurance companies, they they could be doing better, but they're focused on cost savings that they can control and that they can control where the patient goes instead of putting the patient first and saying, if I partner with the pediatricians, if I partner with primary care, they can do the work, they can get, they can capture these kids and ultimately down the line, that will reduce expenses. Because we know that the moment a child gets hospitalized, whether it's for suicidal ideation, an attempt, that child becomes extremely expensive, not just in that moment, but for years to come. And so creating a pathway and working with the the primary care provider that can start the treatment process as soon as possible is very important. We have been working with the insurance companies for a couple of years on stressing this importance, getting codes carved out and going back and forth year after year to say, okay, now you've got to pay a little bit more because they definitely, from a reimbursement standpoint, they could be doing way better, especially given what patients would be paying if they have to go out of pocket. But like everything, that's a barrier. So being insurance credentialed is really important to ensuring the most children have access to care. Right. And I would say, and I know I'm going to give John the floor here in one second, but I was also thinking in my head, so we've got the commercial kids on one side, we have kids, there's a few that are uninsured, and then we have kids with Medicaid. Now, there are some advantages to kids with Medicaid if they're sick enough and they qualify for community mental health services, those kids can have access to some pretty comprehensive stuff like home-based care and wraparound the commercial just there there just isn't anything that exists so there's this system that is set up to be so disconnected from what kids need it the services should be available to those children who need the services so john you had a comment yeah it's just that the whole psychology uh, of payers and payment is is evidence in the terminology that we use. The, even the word reimbursement implies that, yeah, it's on you to provide a service regardless. And then the insurance company says, you know, we'll pay you back for what you did because it was what you were supposed to do. And really, it's not like if you get a service in any other part of your life, it's not like uh, you reimburse a plumber, you pay a plumber. And because they provide a service and you pay for it. So, and there's a subtle difference there, but it's kind of built into the walls how pairs uh, think of things. So in our world, we figure, yeah, just reimbursement kind of puts you uh, a rung down on the, on the ladder of what, you know, of what, of what your services actually merit and who's really responsible for that. Well, it's almost like you have, you do the work and then you have to beg to get paid for the time and you have to code it right and you're limited by codes. I mean, I could do services that are truly mental health services, counseling codes, actual therapy, brief CBT, brief interventions, but I can't use counseling codes. I can't use the codes that a psychiatrist uses, even though what I'm doing may be appropriate for those codes. And then I have to call it something else. So it's just so complicated. And I think a lot of times we're just, we're just trying to take care of the kids and, and, and it's expensive to do because I can see six kids in an hour with an otitis media and one kid who's suicidal. 
And Mm -hmm. the payment I receive is so much less, even though in my mind, I've saved a kid's life if I'm able to address their suicidality and I've kept them out of the emergency room and inpatient. That's a huge savings to be able to do. And it's better care. Yeah. So Jen, I would, yeah, I would I, like, absolutely. The, the numbers don't add up, but the, the other component with these kids with mental health issues is like when you're mentioning a child with otitis media, you see them, you treat them. They usually go home. They're fine. You don't see them again until they need something new. A child with mental health, you've seen them for an hour. You're probably following up in the next week or you're making phone calls or sending portal messages. There's some type of active ongoing dialogue between you and the child or you and the parent to make sure that child is stable. And nine times out of 10, you're either not able to get reimbursed for that time, or you have to jump through a bunch of hoops to submit for those types of encounters, which are very hard to track. The system for getting um, reimbursed for that type of work and care plan management is so complicated that it's almost impossible to do. So the job doesn't stop when the patient leaves the exam room when you have a child with mental health issues. You are now linked into that kid because that parent is also most likely to call you in the middle of the night when the kid's threatening to run away or there's a crisis. There's more work to be done that you're not going to get paid for. Right. And and most of us don't get paid for phone calls or right. get paid for doing all those portal messages, which have now become the new thing. And it's not just a quick question. I mean, we're getting paragraphs that mm-hmm. we need to address. And so I just don't think that the the insurers really appreciate what, I mean, I, I wish that they would walk with me or with my partners for a week and just see what's it like 24-7. And whether or not, if you're in private practice, I mean, and you're trying to figure this all out on your own, if you're an employed physician, you may have billers and coders and folks that can do that, or someone savvy like you, Jenna, to try and sort through this, but it's complicated. Well, it definitely takes a lot of, it takes a lot of practice of sending claims out, seeing what gets paid, what doesn't get paid, kind of working the system because you, you know, cannot call the insurance company and just get a clear-cut answer. You you have to, like you said, you have to figure this out all on your own. And as you're going through this process, you are trying to make sure that you are getting paid and still able to run your business because it, it, it eats up so much of your schedule to do this type of thing. And what we have found in our practice is is ultimately for private payers for commercial insurance, pediatrics is a rounding in their overall budget. It's it's almost insignificant. And they care more about, or what it feels like they care more about, filing their time, effort, and money into adult medicine. And they're not really giving pediatrics the the attention it deserves because there really is such, there's so there's a place to make a really big impact that's going to sustain throughout the child's life and not enough like ultimately pediatric spending is inconsequential to adult spending and so they don't prioritize it but the impact is so significant because at the end of the day there's nothing there's nothing more traumatizing than children that are out here trying to commit suicide having these thoughts cutting themselves 
And just having that difficult time, it's difficult for the parents. And frankly, there's this whole expense that carriers don't understand that if you have a child doing, engaging in behaviors like this with mental health disorders, that does ultimately put stress on the parents. That ultimately leads into cost and adult medicine because most parents are, are working full time. They have other children and you're trying to manage this child. And it's really hard. So that's probably the costs spread out. Yeah, that's probably an understatement. I, John, what do you think about that? Well, uh, two things. First, I think it's imperative that that pediatricians make full use the tools that they're given. One of the coding reforms that went into effect last year, and I hope everyone is fully aware of it, is that it's now allowable and possible to report your entire day's time on, on a patient, which is not just that extended time you spend in the exam room, but also the time you've spent that day in preparing beforehand, in documenting, in coordinating with, with anybody else, whether it be a teacher or any quality, any professional about it to plan future care. All of that should be reported. It's also there are also codes for reporting portal communication, although I know that there are on how soon you can do that around, around the time of an actual face-to-face -face visit. If it's too close in time, then you can't. We understand that in 2023, that there'll be a code. It's not a full CPT code. It has some categorization or Y code or something about, about audio only uh, care, basically your phone call, how that's going to get paid and implemented has yet to be determined, but, but yeah, you're both are right. The telephone calls haven't been paid, but because of the pandemic and people starting to pay for telehealth and some people not having internet access and being in some of their care by phone, some need was perceived to be able to, to cover telephone communication. And we'll have to see next year how that goes. I, I want to go back to something you said, John, because. I don't think I've ever taken into account documentation time. I mean, I can think about because for those of us, and I would guess that most listeners have electronic health records and we use templates and all the things to, to try and be more efficient. But with, in my experience with mental health patients or patients with mental health behaviors and, and concerns, I'm free texting. Now, sometimes I could use like a talk to text, like a dragon or something like that, but I'm free texting a lot. Well, that takes time. And, and there were times that I would be up till, you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night documenting for four hours. So are you saying that I can count that documentation time? Yes. As long as it's done on the same day as your face-to-face -face encounter. Uh, wow. And you have to, yeah, you have to document what that time is. And, uh, and of course, once you go past the upper time limit for our day level four, level five complexity visit that you're coding on the basis of time, then there are prolonged you know, services codes. And, uh, and of course, in Jenna's world, what all comes down to, if you've done all of that, if you've recorded, if you reported everything, then are you getting, are those codes being recognized? I mean, you, we have to be the ones who record all of that and use the codes as smartly as we can. And they're trying to, there's, they represent an attempt to reflect real life work, 
but it's always comes down to how are they being recognized? And if they're not being recognized and you've done the honest work of using real legitimate codes, then, then you got to be prepared to, to fight, to enlist your chapter, to enlist your, your chapter's pediatric counsel to, to try to push it. And as Jenna has said, and as you've said, you know, the value of what we do is really has impact. We're not just budget dust, as some people have said. You know, we lay a groundwork for more sound, better health, including mental health for the whole life course. So the, the command of our committee on child health finance is putting together a, a policy statement called the unique value of, of that pediatric healthcare proposition. And we're going to be trying to make that argument, saying that, trying to explain why employers should care, the people who pay for health insurance for uh, most of Janice patients and half at least of, of the kids in the United States, why they should care about it, why regulators of insurance plans should care about it. And honestly, if you can't, because it's, you're unlikely to convince insurance plans of this value, probably the way forward is to make your best case to them, but also regulation, quality measures that will mean something. I've got a question. So let's say that I see a patient. I mean, this wouldn't be out of the realm of normal. I see a patient, they come in for a depression follow-up and I'm treating them. And they disclose at the visit that they have suicidal ideation. And I spend, I mean, easily an hour talking to the patient, talking to the parent. If I'm lucky and I live in a state where, and, and they're, I think, all but four now that have child psychiatry access programs, I might call a psychiatrist and say, hey, I've got a kid. I need to make an adjustment. What should I do? So that's that time. I might call their therapist. And then I document for another half hour on that patient. I can document for all that time. So, I mean, it could essentially be two hours easily. And are payers actually paying that or is there pushback from them, John? I would defer that to Jenna, who's, who sees the, sees the explanations of benefits, the statements come back to her from the insurance companies. I mean, is Medicaid yeah. paying on that? I believe so. Now, of course, are they paying adequately is always a thing, but those are. Well, we know that's not the case, case, right? <laughs> but yeah, but, but the codes are there, including uh, one, uh, you this has to be carved out from that two hours of time, but there's also a code for your end of an interprofessional communication where you're preparing to have a, a conference with, in your case, the psychiatrist and when they bill for being consulted, even though they're not seeing the patient face to face. So the mechanisms are there. And again, I'm so, this is why I'm so glad you have Jenna and uh, I, because I can tell you codes are, but you need somebody who's on the ground who knows getting paid that uh, and of course being used. Yeah. So Jenna, what's that look like? I mean, are you getting insurers to, to pay those? So yes, actually. So for the prolonged services codes, those are paid across the board by all commercial payers. Could those reimbursements be higher? Yes, they could, but they typically are paid. I will say though, that what you run into is the more frequently you end up billing a level, a level five with like a 99354 or any prolonged service code thereafter, if you do that enough times, you're going to start getting hit with audits from the insurance company and they're going to withhold payment until you send copies of the medical records. And so, and then you run, if they, you can have it all documented, 
And if they come back and say, oh, we don't really feel like it meets the criteria, whether it does or doesn't, they will drop your codes automatically down. Some will deny. Others will automatically drop you to like a 99213 and then make you force you to file the appeal. Now, on appeal, you'll often win. But now we're talking about a lot of a lot of manpower and hours. And what should have been paid within a couple of weeks is now taking three months to get paid. And obviously, if you don't stay on top of that, then you can run into the timely filing issues where you get, don't get paid at all. So it is paid. And the more you do it, the more they flag you and start requesting records before they pay you. So you just your documentation has to be really on point and you just you need to have a billing team in place that understands that they need to prioritize getting those appeals out the door, getting the records out the door so that you don't end up sitting with a backlog of AR because the insurance company decided they weren't sure if you really deserve to be paid that. It's like we have to like beg to do, I mean, we're already doing the work and then you have to try and collect it on the back end. And in the meantime, some of this is getting either dumped on the families or it comes back to us and they're like, mm, sorry. Well, then it makes it less. I mean, who wants to do this kind of work and then not get paid for your time? Well, that and then the parents getting the or guarantor, whomever is holding that childhood insurance, they're getting this explanation of benefits every time that claim processes. So it is for those that actually check their EOBs. It's very confusing because they might get a, their first EOB that says the claim was denied, not paid, zero patient responsibility. And then three months later, they get a new EOB that likely is putting it all to deductible. And it's a little confusing for them. And now the timeline is so, we try to bill in, in real time in our practice, but you can get to this point where the parents like, well, I thought that was already taken care of. And now it's three months later. And why is this? Like, why do I owe all this money? Like, it's, it creates unnecessary confusion. And again, then that's more time that someone in your office is spending trying to collect and trying to explain it to the parent. Because if you don't actually know insurance and know policies in and out, it's really hard to understand these processes. And sometimes it makes the doctor look like they're doing something wrong because well, the insurance company says, oh, no, that's, you don't deserve to be paid. That was too much. Well, exactly. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it really devalues the work that we're doing. I mean, I'm having to kind of plead that I'm actually doing this, like somehow I'm making it up or so the onus then is on me to prove that what I'm doing is legitimate. And again, like you're saying, if you don't have a team and you're doing this on your own, you know, if you're just going around, you're missing a lot of money because there's no way to keep up with it. Well, no way to keep up with it. And then why would you want to do it? I mean, you I mean, you can easily see why somebody's like, I can't afford to do this work. And who suffers? The child. John, you had a thought on that? Yeah. Well, for one, Jenna, you brought up a great point about looking at this from the parents' point of view. I mean, if you've ever had the experience in your own family of having a child that needed something along the lines of a mental health issue or an extended thing with substances, yeah, a, a parent could be spending maybe a half day a week on a weekday during business hour, which is the time when you're least likely to be able to do this stuff. 
to kind of go through, make sense of estimate, you know, the EOBs that you're getting and you know, talk to the insurance companies to explain, to give additional information. And Jen has talked about what happens when you know that you've been denied. Uh, and one phenomenon that has started to happen is what people in our payer advocacy group within the academy are calling pre-audit denials or mm -hmm. pre-audit reductions in payment. And that's a phenomenon that, that causes us to say, oh, all of us managers should be checking to see your levels of payment, where you may not get an out and out denial, but you've billed for a high level visit and you're getting a level three payment and nobody told you that's what they were going to be doing. That happens when commercial payers sense that you're charging too many level four or level fives, that you're an outlier. And being an outlier, they think means you're fraudulent, but you know that you're doing a lot of levels four and fives because you're trying to do the right thing. You're doing, you're maybe you're doing more than a lot of colleagues in dealing with ADHD, dealing with these other issues. And so without telling you, you're just getting a level three, what well, would have been a level three payment, even though they're not telling you that they ratcheted it down. And there's that. Now, we have talked to, or I always say we, I don't mean me personally, but folks who are a payer advocacy committee and at higher levels in the AAP have talked to one of the national insurers. It's one of the A ones. I can't remember if it's Aetna or Anthem. And, and they said, look, this is what you're doing. And they said, basically, yeah, that's a thing that we do. That's Aetna. Okay. There you go. At least they're, at least they're admitting. I, I they're mean, completely transparent about it. And it, like, like John said, you, you send your claim out, it comes back and you're like, well, that was a five and now it's a three. And even in like the billing system world, all things need to marry up, right? So when you go and post a payment, your systems, your billing systems are like, this claim is the same claim, but it doesn't match. Like the codes don't match. And it actually also creates more work on the biller's end because the claims usually can't flow perfectly back together because they don't match. But yes, it's they, they just send it back. They don't ask for records. They're like, based off the diagnoses, this is what we've determined. They don't know that maybe this was a strep. You did a culture, you did all these other things. And the parent trapped you in the room for 45 minutes because their kid has had strep two other times and one already had his tonsils removed. And you didn't actually spend 10 minutes on a strep kid. You spent 45 minutes reducing parental anxiety, child anxiety, treating the, the kid, and then probably something else, right? As you had your hand on the doorknob. And then, and then it comes, and then it comes back to me to say, well, you need to change the codes. You need to change it. And I, I think in listening to all this, it's like we clearly need reform. It's clearly mm -hmm. confusing on all ends. And I think all of us would agree it. So before I get everybody who's listening, like super frustrated and depressed that, yes, the work needs to happen and you're not going to get paid for it the way you should be. And, oh, well, let's talk about some actual solutions and ideas that work. I mean, in my mind and what we were able to have in our office was to have mental health professionals in a truly integrated behavioral health. So they're not, we're not sending somebody down the hall to get 
therapy, I'm actually pulling somebody in the room to help me with a family and patient when it needs when that needs to happen. And the other thing, and you kind of alluded to it, Jenna, earlier, is that when we often will see a child and say they have anxiety and that they would benefit from therapy, and I make a referral to a therapist. The numbers are like 70 to 80% don't ever go. And if they Mm -hmm. do, they might go three times or four max. But if I have somebody in my office and I can connect them in real time, they're much more likely to follow up because they see that person as an extension of me. So let's talk about integrated behavioral health, because I think a lot of folks, whether you're an employed physician or you're in private practice, think, I can't afford to have that mental health professional. I'm going to lose money on it and it's going to make my life easier. So maybe it's a lost leader and it's worth doing it. But Jenna, in your experience, you guys have made this work, right? Yes. Yes. And so we have a very expansive program that really over the past three years, we have just ramped up. You actually can make money. Now, again, you do have to negotiate some contracts and you need to maximize time and have a really specific program. And so in in my office, we are currently we have seven therapists on staff, on staff, a mix of clinical social worker workers and LCPCs. And we have one psychiatrist on staff. Now, the psychiatrist I know is the unicorn. It's the hardest thing to possibly get. If you can get one, I highly recommend it. But we, so we have this whole team. We manage our wait list. So our therapists or psychiatrists only see patients that are in our practice. And when a provider identifies a child that, that needs therapy, they get funneled to our mental health department. They complete a very small intake form and then we match them with a therapist. Like I have one therapist that it is really familiar with kids on the spectrum. I have one that does focus on eating disorders right at the earlier beginning stages. And then we have, we, we see them from five, five and up. And our program was initially designed that we would do therapy for about six months. And now we're kind of like really somewhere between nine to 12 with some kids being six months that you get the child into therapy, you link them into services, but they're not there forever. If a child is identified as needing long-term therapy, so this is going to go on for years, we do the best we can to stabilize them, link them into an outside resource, and then we move them on because we can't have all of our therapy team locked in with the same patients for years on end because then it limits our ability to help. And there are a lot of children out there who actually don't need long-term therapy. They need coping skills. They need to just deal with the traumatic event that's happening in the family. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe there's some major sibling conflict. A parent has moved something or it's just behavioral. And so, so we do that. And then the other part that we do is we have, we do groups. So group therapy is a highly effective way to reach more kids and, and gain their participation and their buy-in. When kids can see that they're not the only child with that issue, it not only validates their experiences and their feelings, it helps them as observe. Like they can observe another child's experience, what happened in the family, what that child did. And sometimes other kids in group will be like, whoa, that's like, 
really, you did that? And so it starts putting behavior into perspective that they can't get just from an adult telling them. Are there specific space? Are there specific types of things that you do groups? Because I've heard of people doing like group ADHD Mm -hmm. um, patients because they're strategies. Right. So we're actually this summer launching our behavioral and ADHD groups where we're going to be running three groups of those a week, you know, each group with six kids that is focused on strategies and some of the behavioral components and some of the impulsivity, right, that happens with those children. And each of those groups is also going to consist of a parent component because Often the reinforcement at home is one of the most critical pieces to ensuring that the child is utilizing these skill sets. We also, we offer a body image group because that is one of the biggest reasons we see, especially teen girls with starting to develop eating disorders, cutting anxiety, depression. And we have an art therapist on staff. And so she also does a social skills group. So those kids that really just can't connect, they need to be in a setting with one another. And so she does art therapy and and does the social skills groups that helps these kids sort of come out of their shell, but also like learn more social norms and how they communicate and behave. And that's on a running cycle. We typically have a wait list for that. I bet. Well, let me ask you. So this is commercial and there are mm-hmm. group therapy codes and they're using the health and behavior codes for that. Yep. John, what about on the Medicaid side? Is this something that would work for that population as well? I mean, are there, uh, is that a, a reality? Well, I'm not aware of of group therapy codes with, with, with Medicaid. I wanted to ask Jenna, your group leaders in that, what level of, of training are there? Because well, I'm thinking that the therapist. Each one of our therapists, they uh-huh. so they all are master's level licensed therapists and they run groups based off of what their particular interest or specialty is. And the groups we so most of the therapists in my office are CBT or DBT trained. And we have done those types of groups. They're those are way more long-term type of groups to do, but really a lot of it comes down to Taking what you would do with individual therapy with one child, writing out a program and expanding that to fit somewhere between six to eight kids in one group together, and then having some structure to the group. And it's basically like it's doing almost individual therapy just in that group setting, but you get more out of it because these kids are able to share and support each other. And as you go through the group, the kids start identifying one another's behaviors and start offering solutions and suggestions and skills that they'd already mastered. So you start seeing these kids helping each other, which is instrumental because then they're demonstrating that they can actually recognize behaviors that that are unhealthy. Well, and also there's the whole parent, just the support for parents. But John, I I can see the wheels turning. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, what, what I've become aware of and I don't know if this is because it's new or I just recently became aware of it, uh, is the existence of uh, the ability to bill under, under what they call psychiatric collaborative care codes. Uh, yes. Yeah, okay, that's it, the 99492. And what that is, uh, that code is for at least half of a 70-minute use of your time. And the way it's designed is that you as the pediatrician are directing a behavioral healthcare activity. 
done by somebody who's master's level or above. And they enter, you're directing the care. So you're doing the billing. They're working in consultation with a psychiatrist. And if you meet those criteria, then it's the kind of thing that's payable. And I'm, I'm looking here at, at some of the other components of that. There, it involves developing an individual treatment plan, rating scales to monitor diagnosis and are employed. There is your mental health person that you're directing, your master's level or PhD level person is consulting weekly with the psychiatrist. They have to have that consultation going on. And then there are evidence-based uh, interventions that, that take, take place with them. And I would say with that, having uh -huh. piloted collaborative care, uh -huh. you have to have a, a psychiatrist. You really have to have somebody, a mental health person that's coordinating all of it. it, mm -hmm. it, it and there are a lot of hoops. To, I'm, I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. And payers are paying for this, but it takes a lot of coordination. And I don't know if you're doing some of that in your setting since you have a psychiatrist, Jenna. So we are. The coordination is the absolute hardest piece. And one of the, the reasons it's actually so hard is because our psychiatrist is in the office and it's very easy for the pediatrician to turn around and talk to the psychiatrist, do some collaborative care, turn around, talk to the therapist, or they all will just sit together at lunch and talk about the patient, right? Like there's no special, they don't have to just put something on the books because we all coexist in the same environment. And when you're trying to help a patient and thinking about a patient in real time, all you're thinking about is, oh, I need to talk to these people and this is what I need, I, I want to do. And I want to see if this therapist can see them because what we will do is sometimes if a pediatrician identifies something going on with the child and one of the therapists has a cancellation or an opening, we will ask them to do an assessment and do a consultation, even if we don't have room to put them in therapy. And then if needed, they'll also see the psychiatrist and then they'll reconvene because the pediatrician may still be the one that needs to quarterback it. But now the patient has had two professional consultations. The pediatrician's getting the advice. The pediatrician is then administering the care. It is the bridge until they're fully locked in. Well, and the other piece of that, and again, I correct me if I'm wrong, but the patient also has to consent to all of that before yep. you can even do the billing. So you have to, if I'm going to have that kind of chat with the psychiatrist about that, and I'm going to bill for that, I have to have told the parent, hey, I'm going to chat with the psych. So it, it gets really yeah, because complicated. That, it's going to deductible. That conversation, so unless you've met your deductible, all of those extra billings are 100% going to deductible. And in a high deductible healthcare society, that for, for some families, having a $5,000 deductible and knowing that you're actually going to have to pay all that money because you're utilizing therapy services or psychiatric services, it's a lot, right? Like just because you have a deductible doesn't mean you can afford to pay the deductible. Right, right. I, this is very, it's very complicated. And I, I mean, I feel like this could be like a day long conference about doing that. I, I also, wish that it existed that someone like you, Jenna, who's done, I mean, this is really clever and creative. I mean, you're really thinking outside the box. I mean, you have a team, but you've done it in a way that you guys can afford to pay people, including benefits. And yeah, um, so you have to know that the margins 
the first year or two you do it, you can make a profit, but you shouldn't be expecting to knock it out of the park. You're going to cover everything. You're going to make a little bit of profit, but you're not going to look at your books at the end of the day and be like, wow, because when you first start, the insurance companies basically are like, we're only going to give you the bare minimum of our fee schedule and you need to prove to us that you can do what you say you're going to do. And you're like, I I mean, it's a therapist. They're going to do what they do. Um, So you have to prove year over year that you're doing something effective and you have to manage and monitor your data all on your own because none of the insurance companies can't do it. So you need to have a way to say, here's my data of kids I've helped. These are the kids that have graduated from therapy. These are the kids we've prevented um, from being hospitalized. You need to know your data in order to get better insurance rates because they have no way of tracking that. And then if you're in an environment, which many people are, where you have some people with commercial insurance and some people with Medicaid Mm -hmm. and the Medicaid is not going to pay the same rate. So I, I'm kind of looking at you, John, like, can could you make it happen if you have a mix? And if you're in an FQHC, then it's a whole different. I mean, if all you're seeing is Medicaid, it's a little bit different setup. And yet there are FQHCs. I know, for example, there are people that have combined FQHCs with CMHs and they're actually actually able to do that. So what about that? Yeah, there's looking from the point of view of what's going to help the private practitioner maybe isn't working in a, in a federally qualified health facility, which has its own rules and reimbursements. Oh, I'm sorry, I said reimbursements, the forbidden word, I meant payments. The one mechanism, I think, to lighten the load, to kind of prove, prove your worth is that's had, has had a little bit of a track record is this. A lot of state chapters have quality improvement programs, and those can, if you participate or if you get your chapter to sponsor one that, you know, that helps you venture off more into mental health services. Sometimes we've had success in Ohio in getting the attention because we try to prevent the, present these through our pediatric council to the payers. And we've, we've had Medicaid managed care organizations see the value of that and help give grants to, to fund the quality improvement programs where a person from the chapter comes out, who does quality improvement, comes out to the practice, gets together a bunch of practices to, uh, to pilot something. They help collect data and, and that maybe can share the load. So that's one possible mechanism. And just to keep people from despairing, this thing is so easy to do. There has been a win uh, that's been accomplished with, with one of the payers, and I don't know if it was Edna or not, uh, where they recognized the fact that their pre-audit reduction in payment for complex uh, level visits was not adequate to the mental health crisis. So, so at least one payer has carved out mental health services as being exempt from that pre-audit payment reduction. Also, there has been a tool developed and I think it may be in one of the accompanying uh, bits of information that you send out to your podcast folks about a tool for a different kind of problem, which is the practice where a payer reduces payment for your complicated visit on the basis of what diagnosis you ended up with. So in other words, your strep payment, your strep patient who ended up taking 45 minutes of time, and they said, no, no, strep can't possibly be a justification for a level four or five. 
And so therefore we're paying you for a three. Well, turns out we always knew that you can't really do that. Insurance companies don't get to define what a CPT code is or isn't, or what an appropriate use is of it or not. The AMA owns the definitions of CPT codes. And there is uh, that asset tool where it has successfully been reported by a pediatrician in Kansas that a CPT diet code was being misused. And I think the Blue and Blue Cross uh, changed its its policies by reporting the, the wrongness of it all. <laughs> Just, it almost and, sounds like it was like a, a black mark, like, oh, it, like they flagged it. Like, if you're using this diagnosis, we're not going to pay you for it. Like, like they already called it. Well, I'll, I'll make sure that we get that information and put it in the show notes for folks that are listening. I, it sounds like, and, and again, I think we could talk about this for a long time, that wouldn't it be something if folks like Jenna, who have made this successful, and folks like you, John, who have a lot of working knowledge of Medicaid, could somehow come together and put together some kind of something in writing, a plan that says, hey, this is what needs to happen. Present it to whomever, the, the powers that be, to say, we need to train. Because I think if we wait for insurers or the government to create an overhaul it's not going to happen. It's going to have to come from, can we bring the ideas to the table? I mean, is that, John, I'm looking at you because about advocacy, is that a like pie in the sky dream? No, the mantra is stronger together. I think for some of these pre-audit denials that we were talking about, the AMA itself has, has started to get involved because we're not the only people affected by it. Ophthalmologists are too. Neuro-ophthalmologists have more complicated visits. Than, 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 other, than other folks in their own specialty do. So uh, some of these problems are multi-specialty kinds of things. There, there are ways for people to be involved with your pediatric counsel at your chapter level. There is the AAP's hassle factor form that can be filled out when you're having a problem with R. The AAP's coding hotline feels about 100 calls a month from people saying, hey, I'm not getting paid for this. Am I coding this wrong? And they're finding that two thirds of the time it is a coding issue, but one third of the time it's a payer issue. And if there's a payer issue, then uh, we have a payer advocacy and advisory committee that regularly has assigned members to talk to this member, talks to this insurer. Its incoming chairman is a guy by the name of Great Barabell, who likes to say that he crossed over from the dark side. He was a medical director for a South Carolina Medicaid managed care plan. And he kind of, he likes to say that he knows the tricks from that side of things. And come July 1st, the new chair of the Committee on Child Health Financing, my replacement is Jim Perrin, a former Academy president, whose whole thing is about his special area of expertise is about Medicaid, long-term value of the care that we do. And every year there are openings usually for new members. So. I'd say people should use these routes of communication at their chapter level, hassle factor forms to report to the, to the academy. And, and I know that as you were saying, we could go on forever, but I just wanted to make sure we got out there yep. some of those ways. And uh, my question for Jenna is if you haven't already presented at an NCE. I haven't. I've done, I've presented at the local children's conference a couple of years ago, actually alongside Sandy Chung, but I, I haven't, but I'd absolutely be open to it. I will say when we talk about pipe dreams, my pipe dream would be to literally 
write the legislation for how healthcare, especially in pediatrics, is managed and run because there are so many loopholes and none of it actually puts the patient first. And for something that ultimately does not cost insurance companies that much money, but it, I mean, there are ways to be so effective and efficient and make long-term impact that has savings. It feels to me like it's not a priority in the government and it's not a priority to, to, to the payers. And it really should, it can be, and it's actually not that complicated. They make it complicated. It's not that complicated. Well, and I guess there's two things. One is, and and we'll have to wrap up here because I, I, like I said, we could go on for a long time and I love your idea, John. And Jenna, you have an in at the AAP leadership since you know Sandy Chung, who's our incoming president, about can we bring this to the forefront because mental health's an issue for us and, and it's a priority for the AAP. So I, I guess two things. One is the Medicaid expenditures, most of it goes to adult care and not to pediatrics. I mean, pe- pediatric costs are not driving the Medicaid costs. And then the other piece, and Michael Klein, who is a pediatric surgeon, once said, if we put children at the forefront of all the decisions that we made about everything, we would be a much better and just society. And and I think this is case in point. If we thought about this, what is best for this child with ADHD, with anxiety, with an eating disorder, and these mental health crises, with suicidal ideation, what is best for them? Not what's going to cost less, cost more, but there's a huge return on investment. I mean, if I have a child that has an eating disorder and I can address that when they're 14, that saves all the residential care that they might have at 24 when it is extraordinarily expensive to do inpatient eating disorder care. Or you think about substance use and the list goes on. Some parting words, and I'll try and sum up this because this is complicated and I will make sure to put in some links to this information. But in parting, what are some words of hope that you could offer to listeners so we don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, I'm just not going to get paid for doing this? I'll start with you, Jenna. I would say that just pick a starting point and go with it. Before you drive down all the numbers, before you drive yourself crazy thinking about what you can and can't, just pick a starting point. And if your starting point is you're going to hire one therapist, hire the therapist, and then figure out step-by-step what the best model and best use of that therapist is in your office because there was more than one pathway. The pathway I'm using is not the only pathway. And once you get one down, it's going to be so much easier to expand. You will make money. You will cover their expenses. Put the job out and just get started. And know that you can figure it out from there. And if you falter a little bit, it's okay because you're building something you can pivot as you need to and you will be fine and your patients will be better for it. So just start. Thank you. How about you, John? You get to bring us home. And when you're looking at at change, look at where the leverage points are. And many times this will involve people stronger than yourself. I mean, if you are uh, certainly locally, if you have a large market share, a large share of the children in your community, then as Jenna has, you can talk about having some influence on the contracts that you have. At a state level, 
It turns out that Medicaid managed care organizations have contracts with the State Department of Medicaid, and those contracts come up for renewal. So that is a time where your chapter can be talking to your State Department of Medicaid about what kinds of things do you want a Medicaid contract to to have? But they have some limitations that come from the federal government, but but they're allowed to innovate. They're allowed to go beyond the floor what the federal government requires. And uh, you can make the case there. And we've already talked about different ways of communicating issues with the National Academy, which in turn gets alliances with other um, specialty organizations, as we were saying. I feel uh, like we need like a support group for pediatricians. Yes. We need group well, think, therapy, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the most active listservs is that run by the by SOBA, the section on administration and practice management. And that's where pediatricians jump in and help each other with what has worked for them. And it also ends up being a tremendous amount of, uh, a tremendous amount of venting goes on. on <laughs> well, and the sections, the section is something any member can join. So if you're an AAP member and I'll put the link to that section. Well, I want to thank both of you for your time and expertise and creativity and innovation to say, hey, this is an issue. It's on the forefront. It is on everybody's radar that mental health is an issue. And we just have to figure out how to do this differently. And it's not going to come from, I don't think from an insurance company coming up with really creative ideas. I think it's going to have to come from those of us who do the work to say, hey, this is important. It matters to kids. And we have to be able to pay people to do it. I mean, that's just the reality. Well, listen, thanks so much to you both. I so appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I appreciate your setting aside the time to talk about this kind of issue and for putting up with the discussion about numbers and... <laughs> well, it matters to kids, so, and pediatricians and clinical, other nurse yep. practitioners, PAs, all of us, family medicine, all of us who take care of kids, so, and the mental health professionals who want to partner with us, so. Well, listen, thanks again. You guys have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, so this is a pretty complicated conversation, but I think it's really important to the work that we do. So here are my takeaways. Number one, thank you. I really appreciate John and Jenna taking the time to share their insights and some creative solutions as well. Number two, a warning. This is complicated and not sexy stuff, but it is so important to the work we do. Number three, more than 50% of children are covered by Medicaid. This was a huge jump from pre-pandemic numbers of around 40%. Families newly qualified based on their income, some from loss of jobs, and once the public health emergency is over, and that will probably be in fall or late part of this year, many of those kids may fall off those rolls. There are another about 5% of kids who qualify for CHIP. And these are kids whose family incomes are above the poverty level qualifications for Medicaid, but still are caught in that we just don't make enough money to pay for health care. There are a lot of kids and families who are really struggling out there to make ends meet. And I think one of the numbers John threw out that was pretty startling was that in some states, $18,000 is about the poverty level line for an individual adult and child. 
to qualify. And I just think that's astounding when you think about all the things that people have to pay for to survive. And this is really not about thriving. It's just by getting by. Number four, insurers have created a parallel universe where mental health is carved out from physical health. And that includes different panels of providers, different codes that are covered or not covered, depending on who the provider is, and basically just different rules. Parents who are seeking mental health services for their children may find that they are caught in the middle of this payment mess. Guess what? We are too. Number five, words matter. We should not be reimbursed for work we do. We should be paid. Use the words payment versus reimbursement for impact. We should not get, quote, paid back for work we do, but just plain paid and paid fairly. I mean, this is hard work, and we all know that. Number six, for payers, pediatrics is a very small part of what they do. Jenna referred to it as a a rounding error. They're they're just not a priority. And this is really short-sighted because we know that taking care of kids on the front end will prevent a lifetime of suffering and cost. Number seven, make full use of the codes that you can use. And, And this is primarily when we're looking at mental health, coding for time. Remember to capture all the work that you're doing that same appointment day. It may be phone calls, coordination of care, visit time, and documentation time too. If you put it off till the next day, you can't count it. But if you're spending hours after work doing documentation, take that into account if you're coding for time. Number eight, a caution and reason to review your billing. Payers are looking at those who are using more upper-level codes, so the 99214, 99215, and then limiting how they're paying those and making us appeal if we catch it. And a level five may get downgraded to a three. These are referred to as pre-audit denials. Feel sneaky. Number nine, 2023 may bring new coding options to cover audio, or in other words, telephone calls. And we know that during the pandemic, for those who were doing telehealth, some families just didn't have great internet service or any at all. And so a lot of the work was being done using phone calls. And we all know that phone call work is a big part of what we do. So stay tuned. Number 10, get creative. For Jenna's practice, they literally created a mental health department. And rather than shying away from behavioral health, they invited it in. They have seven mental health providers and one psychiatrist. I mean, who doesn't envy that, right? Number 11, the practice not only covered the cost of their mental health professionals, but actually realized a profit. This is doable, folks. Number 12, consider group therapy. You might look at ADHD, social skills building. One of their really popular groups was on body image. And this provides support for kids and parents. And you can see six, maybe eight kids in the course of an hour and bill for those services. And it's very effective and efficient. Number 13, and I've said this one multiple times throughout the course of almost 100 episodes, integrated behavioral health is worth every single penny. It will change your life. Figure out how you can afford to hire a mental health professional, even if you just start out part-time. 
Number 14, be prepared to manage and monitor data when you're contracting with payers. If you're employed in a hospital system, work with your IT folks on how you can make the numbers work in your favor. If you're privately employed, you may have to take some time and really sift through what is the work that you're doing and what is it saving payers. Number 15, for pediatricians, partner up with your payer advocacy councils on the AAP chapter level and use the AAP hassle factor form to file questions and put those concerns on the AAP radar. You can also use the AAP coding hotline, and I'll put all the links for those in the show notes. The AAP hotline, you may see those coding questions come up in AAP news with some specific answers to your questions. Number 16, in closing, from Jenna, start with one thing, monitor and build it out, and give yourself some time to do that. Number 17, from John, use your market share impact with payers. If you're covering a lot of kids in your community, use that to your advantage. You matter to those insurers because who's going to cover those kids if you don't? Number 18, from me, there is power in numbers. Get savvy and get paid for the work that you do because it is critical to the kids that we see. They need us and we really need to meet their needs. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate the work that you do. I would love for you to give me some feedback about other topics you'd like to hear about. And you can DM me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. You can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino or send me a message on Twitter at Leah Gugino. Thanks so much and have a really great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.